Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Julia, Amanda's on vacation, and this is episode 188, Friday the 13th, Myth Movie Night. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. I think we have a lot of really interesting insights onto just horror as a genre and how horror has kind of influenced the way that we see urban legends to this day. But first, we wouldn't be able to make these episodes and make these shows and try new things without the support of our patrons, especially our newest patrons, Mika Nieselkins and Draconis Lupus. Kesa, Jesse Lucas, Molly, Josh Bloom, Jessica Price, Sarah Cruz, Claire G, Bonnie Marbury, Sophie Buckland, and Betsy Lang. They join the ranks of our incredible supporting producer-level patrons like Megan Moon, Keegan, Landon, Mr. Folk, Jen, Hannah, Alicia, Sarah, Nikki, Megan Linger, Deborah, Molly, Skyla, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh, as well as our legend-level patrons, the Medici to our renaissance. That's a renaissance joke for you all. Chelsea, Donald, Eden, Drew, Avonlea, Clara, Francis, Josie, Morgan, Me Up, Scotty, Audra, Chris, Mark, Sarah, and Jack Marie. Now, Amanda normally would ask me what we were drinking for this episode, and I want to remind you to stick around, as always, for the refill, where I recommend the perfect cocktail to have around a bonfire and hopefully not get murdered by a mass killer. That would be good, right? It is Amanda's recommendation this week, and she left me with a very, very good one. It is Take a Hint, Danny Brown by Talia Hibbert. She actually recommended Get a Life, Chloe Brown, a while back, and this is the sequel, and Amanda says she loves it even more than the first. So if you like that recommendation, you gotta pick up Take a Hint, Danny Brown. It's apparently like a friends-to-lovers romance that involves fake dating, so you know it is gonna be a good one. In the world of spirits, just a reminder that you can pick up our very, very cool new merch. We have those haunted national park posters that I'm fully in love with. Not every day that you get art of a skeletal cowboy. We have the digital coloring book that is absolutely gorgeous and full of creatures that you know and love from this podcast. And we have beautiful copper cocktail pins that were made in partnership with Shaker and Spoon. You don't see a lot of enamel copper pins out there and they are absolutely gorgeous. So you can pick those up by going to spiritspodcast.com merch. And finally, we are excited to tell you that Multitude is doing a live online show. It's going to be July 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. It's featuring all of your favorite Multitude hosts in new and exciting formats or some old ones that you can see together right in front of you. You can see it live from your computer. 25% of all of our sales will be donated to Black Lives Matter, and you can buy a ticket at multitude.production slash digital live. When you do, a link will be emailed to you so you can watch it live as soon as we go live. If you can't make it, that's all right. Actually, you can buy a ticket anyway, and you can watch the replay. So even if July 30th at 8 p.m. doesn't work for your schedule, you can still see the live stream. Once again, that is at multitude.production slash digital live. And without further ado, please enjoy episode 188, Friday the 13th, Myth Movie Night. Um, Julia, would you please regale me with the classic sounds that we learned in this movie? Ah, beautiful. So creepy. I'm glad it. I'm glad you liked it. I was I was talking to Jake after we watched this film. I'm like, this is one of the quintessential like horror movie character sounds. 
You know, like you, we were talking about this earlier. You did the the psycho sound, the e e e e. Yeah, it's like a different flavor of that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because whenever I think of Jason, because hi, we're talking about Friday the Thirteenth. Every time oh, I think about hello. Jason, I think about Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy. Yeah, and Freddy doesn't have that kind of quintessential sound because he talks. Jason doesn't talk. Yeah, and that's something that really um, surprised me. And felt very modern in this movie, which A, begins set in the 50s. So much like Grease, even though it was released in the 80s, I was like, we're in 1950. Why Why do they have such short shorts? Only for one scene. Only for one scene, yeah. But um, the use of the camera as the assailant was fascinating. We're going to talk about it, but in in lots of instances, you know, you don't know who the killer is until later. So the the characters will make eye contact with the camera, um, which keeps the killer masked and keeps them unknown to the viewer, um, but does allow us to see their actions. Uh, that isn't just like cutting around, you know, as if there's just like a specter in the forest. So that felt super modern to me. And it really kind of heightened my enjoyment um, of both the gory part, which I often kind of just like squint my eyes through, you know, and like mm-hmm. don't really look at. Um, but instead, I, I don't know, there's just like there were choices in how it was filmed and made um, that really kept me uh, kept me invested, even when it was like slightly gory. Yeah, so we did watch the 1980 Friday the 13th that was directed and produced by Sean S. Cunningham, and it was written by Victor Miller. Amanda, I believe it is your turn to do the summary. It sure is. I wrote it. I'm ready. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss a beat. I'm going to set the timer, and remember, you have two minutes, so if anyone doesn't want to get spoiled for basically any of the Friday the 13th, but specifically this one... Uh, skip ahead two minutes. Ready? Skip ahead, yeah. Two minutes and 30 seconds or so, so Julia can give me her reaction at the end as well. Okay, great. Hit it. All right. So, Julia, 1958. We're at Camp Crystal Lake. It is creepy and cheerful and a lot of Christian singing. Um, Two counselors sneak off to have sex in a hayloft, and I immediately yell, you're going to get murdered, and obviously they get murdered. Um, Like I mentioned with the camera, it's the murderer um, as the side of first-person POV. It's really neat. Back in the present, there's a sweet hitchhiker who gets a ride to this camp. A, I don't know why the fuck she's going to this camp. And B, I scream that she shouldn't ride with a stranger. There's a creepy man that's like, there's a death curse, which is not very inventive or specific. Um, And the trucker definitely like touches her butt as he helps her into his truck so i'm very scared about that but against all odds the trucker doesn't harm her um, and instead warns her that a young boy drowned in the lake back in 57 um so she then takes another ride from a first person dude obvs it's the killer obvs he murders her in the 70s where we are now where the the person got murdered in the woods Mm -hmm. at a camp which she was trying to go to um six idealistic teens are refurbing the camp um they are doing all their construction work they are wearing cutoffs and swimming in jeans it's very weird um two of them go off to have sex they're obviously not just murdered but they also boned under a body um so many other people also get killed including this guy steve and ultimately there are two remaining alice and bill they find an axe the phone lines get cut the cars are all broken the power goes out all the things that you want to see in a horror movie bill's immediately killed as soon as they separate Um, And then a car pulls up and Alice runs out to meet the middle-aged woman, Mrs. Voorhees, who claims to be an old friend of Steve, one of the killed teens, and his family. She says that her son Jason was the one who drowned. And he drowned because the counselors were supposed to be watching him, but instead they boned. And so she has been killing all these people. She tried to kill Alice, but Alice kills her. And then Alice wakes up in a canoe in the middle of the lake because she was just like passed out and was, was tired. She wakes, sees cops on the shore, thinks she is saved, but then Jason's big, like, 
like burned and rotting corpse attacks her from the water. She wakes up in a hospital and is like, oh, is everybody dead? They're like, yeah, I'm sorry. And she's like, how about the boy? And they're like, what? And then she's like, he's still there. And then uh-huh. the movie ends with a placid shot of a lake. Excellent. Oh, good summary, Amanda. I will say Steve is the guy who is like trying to reopen the camp. He's the, oh, he's like, the main shirtless one. blonde guy. Yeah, yeah. He he definitely looks like an old photo of someone's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and as in our kind of first shot of that camp, he is like digging a trench and is like, help me out, guys. And then they all like pull a stump out of the ground, uh, which I was just like, oh, man, these idealistic kids. This is like the commune era, you know, and everyone's just like trying to live in nature, man. Also, one of the teens is a young Kevin Bacon. Yes, young Kevin Bacon. I actually did not recognize him until about halfway through the movie, and I felt kind of dumb. <laughs> He's like the second or third person to die, so it's like, you're like, oh, Kevin Bacon. Aw, poor babe. Poor babe. But yeah, that was that was a great summary, Amanda. I, I think you you nailed it on the head there. Um, I, I like that you called the killer he for most of your summary, and then you're like, mm-hmm. but it was a woman the whole time. Excellent. Yeah. Because we're definitely meant to fall into that sort of axe murderer stereotype. Just it's all men who kind of perpetuate the lore. So I think that's the assumption that we're meant to go with. Yeah, absolutely. And you you brought up a good point, too, about the movie that they do a lot of the killings via the perspective of the killer. And it kind of created during that time period a new genre of horror slasher films, which they called the stalker film, Ooh. where you have the the killings be told or just like the stalking angle of the first person of the of the killer, which I think is really, really cool. It definitely heightens the suspense, you know, to be in the perspective of the hunter and when your heart is rooting for the prey, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, Amanda, I, I chose Friday the 13th for two reasons. Basically, one, I, I think that this movie as a whole really encapsulates the idea of how modern urban legends are formed and can grow into things bigger than themselves. And then two, I just kind of really want to talk about the superstition of Friday the 13th as a unlucky kind of day. So uh, let's actually start with that latter one. We'll start with the actual day itself before we dive into the lore of Jason and Friday the 13th, the film franchise. Yeah, because the uh, the date of the 13th was Jason's birthday mm-hmm. of whatever month that was. Yeah. But um, we don't we don't get anything on the Friday the 13th as a construct apart from our everyone's association that it's unlucky. Exactly. So first fun fact Every year has a Friday the 13th, and then some years have up to three Friday the 13th, which is just like, This ooh. calendar is terrible. <laughs> this calendar is terrible. Why do we do it? Um, that's also why you can tell 2020 is a bad year, because we have two Friday the 13th this year. I mean, it's bad for so many reasons. Yes. I, uh, again, as I've said on, te- on several multitude shows, reading a book by Cleopatra, and uh, in Alexandria, they really figured it out. They had uh, 10 months of 30 days maybe 11 and then they had just like two weeks at the end of the year where everyone just like fucked off and had a vacation and that sounds perfect honestly the dream yeah so another fun fact amanda you can always tell when a friday the 13th is going to happen because they occur in months that begin on a sunday so if the month begins on a sunday there's gonna be a friday the 13th that's also bad for me because i get like dozens of automated emails on the first of every month with just like various bills and payments and things and when it happens over a weekend i wake up and i'm just like "Ah!" and i have like 40 unread emails (laughs) so first i want to establish that this is a western superstition as a whole so one historian donald dossie ties the beginning of the unlucky number of 13 to norse mythology I think we've talked about this story before but uh there's 12 gods feasting at valhalla but they don't invite loki 
Loki shows up as the 13th guest, and while the gods are enjoying the revelry of throwing things at the god Baldur, whose mother had gone and made every creature in the world promise to do him no harm except mistletoe, which is uh, basically considered too unimportant to get an oath from. So because of these oaths, Baldur is invulnerable, so the gods spent a lot of time just throwing things at him for fun, you know, because he couldn't get hurt. <laughs> Very relatable. Loki tricks the blind god Hoder into throwing a mistletoe spear at Baldur, uh, which of course is the only thing that can kill him, and of course it does. Classic Loki. So for the Norse, Loki being the 13th guest causes the number to be considered unlucky, but it's not just that, Amanda. So in a lot of different cultures, the number 12 is considered a very complete or powerful number. So you think about it, uh, we have the 12 months of the year, most pantheons in Western mythology have 12 gods, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, there's even like at the Last Supper, there's the 12 apostles, and then the 13th arrival is Judas, who is the one who betrays Jesus, like, it's a whole thing. 12 is divisible by 2, 3, 4, and 6. Yes. Pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So this numerology, so to speak, is something that is like very pervasive in Western culture, that 12 is very strong and important, but 13 is bad. I do just want to say that the um, the Norse story and the Last Supper are both like the opposite of Passover, where the last guest who takes that last place at the table is instead of Elijah, the the wonderful penis sheriff who's just there to ask if everybody is circumcised, have some wine and then leave. Instead, they're there to fuck up your feast. So just want to shout out to the penis sheriff. I forgot about the penis sheriff. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Listen to our Passover episode. It's outstanding. So in general, Amanda, Friday is not the best day in a lot of Western traditions. So early accounts say that the crucifixion took place on a Friday. In the late 19th century, most executions in the United States were held on Fridays. Actually, the first written reference to Friday the 13th as an unlucky day seems to date back to a 1869 biography of the Italian nice. composer Giacchino Rossini, whose biographer Henry Sutherland Edwards wrote, quote, he was surrounded to the last by admiring friends. And if it be true that, like so many Italians, he regarded Fridays as an unlucky day and 13 <laughs> as an unlucky number, it is remarkable that on Friday, the 13th of November, he passed away. Dang. All those, all those Italians who hate Fridays and also 13, it's all our fault. Julia, with your first person Italian American experience, can you tell me why Friday is so bad? Friday bad because most of us are Catholics and therefore Jesus died then. Bad. Judas 13th, bad. Can't eat meat. Can't eat meat. Yeah. You just, it's all out of respect for Jesus, our, our total dislove <laughs> of, uh, of Fridays. 2,000 years ago, we think maybe. This, it was it was Good Friday, which means the one where he died. There were records. We know when Jesus died. Anyway. I'm just saying. The fact that it's called Good Friday has always thrown me off. Yes, it's... Yeah, anyway. So, obviously, since we're talking about it, the superstition of Friday the 13th is still very, very real for a lot of people. Yes. I'm sorry. I have a dumb joke. Can I make it? Of course. Well, Jesus died on a Friday, and then he was like, I'm taking back Sunday, and then he came oh back. Oh, my God. <laughs> Woo! embarrassing nope 200 nope. episodes still got it never there oh god okay so obviously since we're talking about it the superstition of friday the 13th still very very <laughs> real for a lot of people uh according to the stress management center and phobia institute in Asheville, north carolina 
Somewhere between 17 and 21 million people in the United States have a fear of the Friday the 13th, and it is estimated that each Friday the 13th sees a $800 to $900 million loss in business every year. Really? Yeah. People don't want to go out and they don't want to spend money on Friday the 13th. They're like, "Mm, don't want to risk it. Interestingly as well, a study done in the British Medical Journal in 1993 came to the conclusion that, quote, the risk of hospital admission as a result of a transport accident may be increased by as much as 52% on Friday the 13th. Really? Do they have any kind of guesses why? I don't know. I think people just are possibly like a little bit more on edge. So therefore, they might not be driving as carefully. Uh, But at the same time, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt because because the study was criticized for having too small of a sample pool. So kawaii. Yeah. Uh, The podcast Sawbones has taught me a lot about uh, studies and it is absolutely uh, absurd the way that people just quote them as if they are true. Yep. Nope. I'm I'm telling you in advance. Sample size is probably too small. Do you remember when you learned about Friday the 13th as a thing that was supposed to be um, unlucky? I feel like for me, it was just like in a classroom or at, at, you know, a Girl Scout meeting or something. Yeah, I think it was just like in passing. Like, I, I don't remember a particular moment in which someone was like, well, it's Friday the 13th and that's unlucky. I think... I think I got it via context clues where it's like, oh, you got to be careful Friday the 13th. And you're like, what? <laughs> okay. I'll just be afraid. I have a memory of of like the number 13, a black cat, a ladder, you know, like various yeah. things that we think of as unlucky. Maybe someone for some fucked up reason taught it to us. Um, but it it really kind of primes my mind for this discussion I'm sure we're going to have about how fears are culturally created and transmitted in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think I think it's a... I almost think that we had like a classroom superstition lesson or something like that. Now that like you listed Halloween? up, maybe something like that. Weird. Okay. Uh, so Amanda, it's this fear of the specific day that the filmmakers for Friday the Thirteenth were just trying to cash in on. So in fact, Fair. the original title of the film was going to be "A Long Night at Camp Blood," which would have been a whole different movie. I feel like. <laughs> yes, it would have been. I feel like we just wouldn't have gotten all the spinoffs. I don't I don't see a long night at Camp Blood Part 2 happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's less franchisable. The longest night at Camp Blood. To Camp to Blood. The dawn of Camp Blood. <laughs> all right, good. So uh, let's get into the movies. But I think first we'll get a palate cleanse with a refill. Let's do it. We are sponsored this week by DoorDash. Now, delivery doesn't have to just be pizza delivered to your door. DoorDash is letting you select from your favorite flavors from around the globe, and you can order a world of cuisine to the comfort of your living room with DoorDash. DoorDash makes ordering super simple. All you have to do is open the DoorDash app, you choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. They have over 310,000 restaurant partners in over 4,000 cities, so you might just find something new, which I love kind of browsing through the DoorDash app and picking out like, ooh, I haven't tried that sushi place yet, or ooh, ooh, I'm really, really feeling some takeout, but there's no Thai places like within walking distance of me. So I absolutely love browsing the DoorDash app to check out what new restaurants are around me, especially since I moved. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can order from your local go-tos, or you can choose from national chains like, I don't know, Chipotle or Chick-fil-A or Amanda's favorite, the Cheesecake Factory. With DoorDash, you never have to worry about your next meal. It's going to be delivered right to your door. And right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download 
download the DoorDash app and enter the code CREEPY. Again, that's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code CREEPY. Don't forget, that's the code CREEPY for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. If you're like me, you've probably been suffering from insomnia or just the inability to fall asleep. If you're like me, the minute you set your head down, your brain just goes a mile a minute and it just wants to think about all the things you did today and all the things you have to do tomorrow. And it's just really hard to calm yourself down. That's why we're excited to partner with, of all people, Calm. It is a mental fitness app designed to help you relieve anxiety and improve your sleep because improving your sleep can literally change your life. Calm helps you ease stress and get the best sleep of your life. It has a whole library of programs designed for healthy sleep, like soundscapes, guided meditations, which I absolutely love, and over a hundred sleep stories that are narrated by soothing voices like LeVar Burton and Nick Offerman and Lucy Liu. And if you go to calm.com spirits, you'll get a limited offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. Over 70 million people around the world use Calm to help take care of their minds and get better sleep. So get the Calm app and experience a transformation in the way that you sleep. Again, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off Calm premium subscriptions at calm.com slash spirits. Again, that's C-A-L-M dot com slash spirits. And that is 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. And new content is added every week. Get started today at calm.com slash spirits. If you follow the Multitude Instagram or if you're one of our multi-crew who has access to our Finsta, you know that we have these absolutely beautiful plants in the Multitude Studio or the Multitudio. And those plants were provided by Tula House. Tula Plants and Designs is a Brooklyn-based indoor plant and design store founded to bring us closer to nature while exploring new ways to design and experience plant life. They are dedicated to sourcing the most healthy, hard to find, and extraordinary plant species while educating you, the public, on how to best care for them. Since they launched in 2016, they've cultivated relationships with growers from around the world who welcome them into their greenhouses and share with them their their robust plant knowledge. So you're getting plant knowledge from all around the world with Tula House. You can check out their exclusive uncommon finds that drop every Tuesday, which include rare plants and one-of-a-kind pottery. Their store includes hard-to-find tropical and arid plants, a beautiful pottery, growing tools, and even plant-inspired apparel and accessories. They have some really, really cute stuff. They want to inspire you to explore new species, to take risks, and consider plants as more than just a decorative feature, but a living art piece that has a story to tell. And we really try to embrace that with our plants in the studio. Amanda does a great job taking care of them. And they're absolutely not just talking points when people come in, but I learn a little bit about plants every time I see them. And Amanda teaches me about how you have to like wipe down the plant leaf in order to allow it to get more sun and photosynthesize better. I didn't know anything about that, but I learned it from Tula House. You can visit their website at tula.house and their fantastic Instagram is at Tula House. And you can use the promo code Tula House for 15% off your entire order when you go to tula.house. Again, that is 15% off your entire order using the discount Tula House at tula.house. Design for all living things. Tula House. 
So Amanda, since we put ourselves in the place of some camp counselors for at least the first two movies of Friday the 13th, I decided to go with a smoky cocktail called a Smoky Robinson. It is smoky Tennessee whiskey, mezcal, and a maple spiced syrup, which is not really a summery cocktail when you think about it, but I think it's one that you might enjoy kind of wrapped up with a blanket around a bonfire, you know, snuggling with a guy who keeps playing Wonderwall on his acoustic guitar, that kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, it's evoking so many memories. Pine needles just like stuck to your thighs forever. Mm. Yeah, I um, I really like this drink. I've been getting very into mezcal this summer, and I appreciate pairing it with my other favorite spirit, which is whiskey, and whiskey. my favorite sweetener, which is maple. Yes, it's very, very good. Now, Amanda, let's move on to the movie itself. So Friday the 13th is an interesting one, as we kind of talked about before, because the imagery of the killer, Jason, who is this tall, menacing dude in a hockey mask with a machete, isn't even in the first movie. Like we talked about, the only part that we see him in is that one brief moment where he is trying to pull Alice underneath the water and he is burned for some reason, or I think they were just trying to show his body was decomposing, but it came out looking like he was a burn victim which makes zero sense just it's bad bad makeup it happens we can't all be creature from the black lagoon but amanda this is the reason why i really love the original friday the 13th it builds its whole foundation around a character that is supposed to be dead and i feel like this is a great comparison to modern urban legends Taking a small bit of probably true information and then spreading it, adding your own details, and then constantly iterating new versions of the tale. So I would love if we could take a look at the story of Jason as we saw it in the first movie, and then I can kind of lead you through the tale of Jason through the rest of the franchise and how they kind of created their own urban legend and kept iterating off of it. That would be fantastic. Right. So the first movie really sets Jason up as the center of this morality tale. He is a disabled child who drowns because the careless counselors are too busy having sex to take care of their charges. Uh, We'll get this out of the way now, but obviously having a disabled child eventually turn into a deranged killer is problematic as fuck. And unfortunately, it's a trope that a lot of horror movies still utilize. I'm looking at you, Ari Aster, in particular. Stop that. Don't do it. I like your movies, but stop using disabled people for shock value. It's not cool. We know that Jason's birthday is the 13th because Pamela Voorhees has that very creepy line where it's like, you see, he was my son. His name was Jason. And today it's his birthday. Like, oh, you're so creepy and your teeth are so weird. They are really weird. I appreciate how how she shot there because she never looks um, particularly menacing. Mm-hmm. Like she definitely is meant to look like a mom the whole time. And that sort of, I don't know, plays with our expectations and and makes it even creepier. And she's got a great sweater on. That sweater's so good. It's like it just is very white. Good. And it is very good. It's not cable knit, but it's like big wool. I love it. Yeah. But it's also in the middle of summer uh, in terms of the light because I feel like it's dark for so many hours. I feel like it would have been very exciting for Alice to be like, mm, actually, it's Saturday the 14th and then decapitate her. <laughs> like the pedantic child at a at a sleepover? Yep. That was a fun movie we watched tonight. <laughs> you mean yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. It is tomorrow. <sighs> I'll see you next year, Julia. <laughs> So we know Pamela's out here in the first film taking revenge on the horny teen counselors, believing that this is what Jason would want, because we know she uses that kind of creepy child voice as she, like, eggs herself on to kill the counselors, which is extremely Mm -hmm. creepy. I hate it. Very bad. 
Throughout the movie, she kills people with bowie knives and arrows, which are like such camping weapons, which I appreciate yeah. as well. It's like she legit just like has a bowie knife under her sweater in like a satchel. And I'm like, ooh, excellent. I love it. Yeah. And it isn't even until the final fight on the beach that she and Alice use the familiar machete that Jason ends up using in the later films. Um, also, did you notice like the parallels between the ways the teens killed the snake earlier on in the film and then the way that Alice decapitates Pamela is like this beautiful grisly foreshadowing and I love it so much. Very good. I didn't notice it the first time around, but I appreciate it now. Yes. So the only real moment, like I said before, is when we see Jason, who he's like decomposing and gross looking, and he tries to drag Alice into the lake, which originally wasn't even going to happen in the film, Amanda. Really? Originally, it was just going to end with Alice floating on the lake waiting to be rescued. But the filmmakers had just seen Carrie and they're like, no, 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 we need one more scare where like the, the thing comes back one last time to scare the audience. I mean, it was very effective. It was very scary. Yeah. And if they hadn't made that decision, we probably wouldn't have had the setup for the rest of the legacy of Jason. So like that choice to include the one last scare and have Jason pop out of the lake is the reason we have a franchise. I thought you were going to say that they, you know, were getting interest in doing more movies and realized they needed some kind of breadcrumb, but that definitely like made that reality happen. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a great time for us to get into part two, which actually came out just like a year later. And the whole premise is that surprising everyone, Jason actually survived his drowning and has been living in the woods near the camp the whole time. Sure, sure, sure. The inciting incident here is that he has discovered his mother's body and he goes on a murder rampage. At the beginning of the film, he has tracked down Alice from the first movie and then he kills her with an ice pick. And now Jason finally has his first on-screen kill, which is very exciting for him. Congratulations, Jason. <laughs> I, I more want to know why he didn't ever say hi to his mom, who was killing people in that area for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So Jason basically decides that he is going to continue his mother's legacy after he finds her disembodied head on the beach uh, and mm -hmm. is going to go ahead and kill anyone, especially horny teens, though, that show up at Crystal Lake, which, of course, is the perfect time for counselors to be training across the lake at Camp Pakanak. Back back. <laughs> uh, there is a great scene where the counselors are being told the legend of Jason, how he survived that drowning, how he lived in the woods, how he's killing intruders to avenge his mother, all the stuff that I said before, which is great because it's all portrayed as this local legend, even though this is only five years later. So this is a quick moving urban legend in the in the span of the story. They're like, ah, yes. You remember all those teens? Fun times, fun times. It definitely wasn't only five years ago. I know. I was going to say, I really appreciate a local legend, which is like, and then, you know, the witch was buried under that tree. But this is not that long ago. And there it actually happened. Like people were actually killing teens in these woods. The mom was for 20 years. It's it's not it's not a thing someone made up and can't prove. Yeah. And at least at least when Jason was killed versus when the first movie actually happened, it's like the span of 15 years. A lot of shit can go down in 15 years. Sure. That's at least like three generations of high school students, you know? Yeah. Which, which I, I firmly believe that high school and college students are like the oracles of urban legends they're the reason <laughs> that too. they perpetuate i yeah yeah so we find out later on in part two that jason has this whole shrine to his mom that is like in the woods there and one of the counselors actually finds it which includes her severed head and that great sweater from the first movie oh no 
And the sweater actually saves the counselor Ginny's life because she puts the sweater on and manages to convince Jason that she's his mom long enough for her to attack him and get away. That is bold and terrifying. Yes. The movie kind of ends leaving Jason's fate ambiguous, as every good horror movie should do in this period of time. You got to leave room for those sequels, Amanda. You got to (laughs) have, you know, Michael Myers get thrown out the window and then you look and he's on the ground and then you look away and you look again. He's gone. You know, very very important. Very important. Which leads us into part three, Amanda. I really like just telling you these stories because they are they're just they're buck wild anyway yeah. part three leads off with jason making his way to a general store the the first movie establishes that the lake is like 20 miles from town so he walked all the way there wild it's a long walk yeah it's a long walk and so he manages to get himself some nice new less bloody clothes when, when he murders the two owners of the store uh, once again there are some teens nearby and jason is able to like sniff them out like a bloodhound he just knows where the teens are he senses the horniness and he follows it i just have so many questions about how he survived why he still appeared to be like a, a gawky teen if he was killed when he was already adolescent Okay, so the gawky teen in the first movie, right, that we like kind of see for a brief second, they right. they totally revamp that. So the the second movie kind of establishes like, oh, he he did drown, but he didn't drown. He survived the drowning, and that's why he's been living in the woods. So by the time we roll into part two and part three, Jason's like a full blown big man. He just he just yeah, a big tall say. dude. I remembered him as kind of more of like a hockey player style body. Yes, because he has the hockey mask. We haven't gotten to that part yet, but he has a hockey mask. (laughs) Jason has sniffed out these teens like a bloodhound, like you do. Very good. Uh, They're all staying in a vacation home on Crystal Lake. So at least they're not camp counselors this time. They're just horny teens. Actually, I think they're like young college students, but still horny teens. Though at the same time, who leased the house or or lent the house to a bunch of horny teens? Maybe not a good idea. Well, it is Chris, Lady Chris. Uh, it is her family's house that they're staying at. And she reveals to one of her friends through exposition that she's come back to Crystal Lake because she wanted to, quote, face her fears because she had been stalked by a man in the woods two years earlier. Oh, no. Chris. And they use a very similar scene where it's like you see someone watching her. And... Uh, Jason kills one of the teens. He steals his hockey mask from him, which is like the signature look. Uh, yeah. In the second movie, he was just wearing like a burlap sack over his head. Ugh. Yeah. Also scary. Also scary. But the, the hockey mask is so iconic now. Is he trying to protect his identity or is he hiding some disfigurement? He's hiding disfigurement. He uh, he was, like we talked about, he was uh, born disabled he um has kind of a facial disfigurement it's done for shock value it's not cool we're not big fans of that but yeah it's basically he spends a lot of time hiding behind that mask so like the cool part about this is jason doesn't have that signature look and like you even kind of mentioned you pictured him as like a burly hockey player he doesn't get that until the third movie that's why it's really surprising yeah yeah So in the end of the third movie, Chris is able to kind of catch Jason in a trap and like attempts to hang him from a barn. And uh, he manages to free himself by unmasking himself. And Chris realizes that Jason is the man that was stalking her in the woods. And she ends up killing him by hitting him in the head with an axe and escaping in a canoe, very reminiscent to Alice's fate in the first movie. And this movie ends kind of just with Jason's body laying by the lake. But is he dead, Amanda? Is he dead? I mean, I thought there were more movies. 
Uh, side note, before we move on to the next movie, this movie was going to be very different. So it was supposed to be about Ginny, who was the camp counselor from the second movie, who used the sweater technique to survive her encounter. Yep. Ginny was supposed to learn self-defense and then head back to college. And then she tracks down and kills Jason herself. But the actress who cool. played Ginny, Amy Steele, decided she didn't want to reprise the role. So they had to go with this different plot with Chris, who's like, you know, getting redemption for the man that terrified her. Which also, I, I like this movie as well. Again, it establishes more about what Jason is doing when we don't see him murdering teens. It establishes his iconic look, which he doesn't stray from past this. And it really enforces the fear that you don't have to be a camp counselor in order to be a victim of Jason, which I love. Yeah. And I mean, stalking as a very real and scary issue, I feel adds another kind of layer of... Um, just seriousness. Yeah, absolutely. So the next film is Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. Spoilers, it is not the final chapter. Yay! <laughs> it's like naming a file, final, final, by promise. I mean it this time, final. Fuck. Yes, exactly. So Jason wakes up in the local morgue, kills some people in the morgue. He goes back to Crystal Lake and, of course, finds more teens to kill, just like they're having oh, a bonfire boy. somewhere. Uh, he gets his hockey mask back. He kills more teens. I need to remind you, Amanda, that this movie probably only takes place mm, three days after the events of the second movie. I was going to say, three I days. really appreciate a a continuity, which I have heretofore thought of as pulling a John Wick, uh, which can mean many things. But having a movie that picks up immediately after the previous one ends is just a feat of filmmaking that I really appreciate. Amanda, so many people have been murdered over the course of three days in these movies. One would think that some action would be taken. I'm not going to go into like the whole details, but all you need to know is there's this girl named Trish. She has a little brother named Tommy. Tommy manages to trick Jason into thinking that he is him by shaving his head to look like young Jason. And then they just managed to kill Jason and hack him up with his own machete. Is he really dead this time? Um, maybe, maybe. So it's <laughs> that not one the seems harder to survive than even an axe to the head. So it's not the best of endings, but this time Jason, as you asked, is definitely dead. Right? 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 Maybe? Okay, so we're going to talk about the fifth movie now. And it's really interesting because there's no Jason in this movie. Huh. So it follows the story of the now, like, young adult Tommy, the guy, the small child who hacked up Jason and shaved his head to look like him. Okay, so we, we have a five-year gap. No gap at all for three movies. And then suddenly the kid grows up. Yes, he's. I think it's another five-year gap. I think he goes from, like, 12 to 17. So... Tommy is now a young adult. He was the kid that killed Jason. He, now he has to deal with a whole other hockey masked killer who they assume is Jason. But spoiler alert, it's not Jason. It's a paramedic who was inspired by Jason's killings after his own son was killed. So Tommy kills this Jason wannabe. But the end of the movie kind of implies that like Tommy is now the killer because he dons the hockey mask and then he like attacks a woman with a kitchen knife. The whole thing. I see why you selected this franchise, because there are so many interesting elements of uh, seeing a myth evolve as it goes on, myth influencing events that then influence the myth, etc. So this movie is interesting, too, because originally they were planning on basically like creating another trilogy with a different killer, but using the same franchise name. But it was just so poorly received. They're like, no, 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 <laughs> we're going to go back to Jason. We, we figured it out. How do they pull this one off? Yeah, exactly. I think you're absolutely right because it does show how influential Jason is on his community and how pervasive his story is now that we've gone a good five years since the last murder spree. Like, 
Tommy, we can understand, he has a connection to the story itself. Like, he literally killed Jason. But when this man who has no personal association with Jason starts attacking people and mimicking him, like, that shows the impact of the story is so pervasive on this neighborhood, this, like, sleepy New Jersey town. And hell, like, maybe even the state of New Jersey or the whole country at this point. Like, people probably know about this serial killer who was killing all the teens at this lake. And I feel like it would definitely be a headline that, you know, urban legend made manifest or urban legend proves real. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I I can imagine all of the late 80s, uh, like, spinoff, like, TV shows and stuff like that. Like, America's Most Wanted or something crazy. Cold Case Files. Exactly. So, um, adult Tommy does return for the next film, though they've abandoned this idea that Tommy is going to become the new Jason. So he is like, I'm going to go face my fears. And then he and his friend go and they exhume Jason's body. Oh, no. Which is just Don't do that. a bad move. In this Please, kind no. in this kind of like hilarious scene when you when you like take it out of context, uh, Tommy goes to like Tommy just like kind of like sees red and starts to stab the dead body with this piece of like iron fence that he finds. And then as he's doing that, lightning strikes and it revives Jason. No. (laughs) Uh, The funny thing about this movie, too, is that um, they make a point of saying like Crystal Lake has been renamed to Forest Green because there's been a lot of bad publicity. And that's just the funniest shit I've ever heard. (laughs) Fair enough, y'all. It's like, yeah, like that would happen probably if like if y'all kept calling something like Blood Lake or like, you know, the Crystal Lake killings. You would change the name of the lake. I don't know. Yeah. And a lot of towns where tragedies have happened have had to reckon with that and like the real economic impact it has. Yeah. So anyway, this this movie ends with Tommy chaining Jason to a boulder and drowning Jason. But like Jason is supernaturally alive at this point, so he just can't die. Yeah. And we've learned that Jason can apparently drown and not uh, die even before all of this reviving. Yeah, apparently. And honestly, Amanda, this is the point where the series kind of goes off the rails if it hasn't already to be honest oh it, oh it, it's now yes uh so here are the highlights from the rest of the films that i just want to give you thank you there's telekinetic tina who accidentally frees jason from the bottom of the lake the ghost of tina's father who fights jason oh no there is jason takes manhattan there is jason goes to hell there's the fbi tracking him down and blowing him up there's freddy versus jason which is actually my personal favorite of the entire franchise and then I've of, heard of course, that one yeah Amanda, there's cryogenically frozen Jason in the future, which of course leads to Jason X, Jason in space. Oh my. Oh boy. Oh wow. <laughs> Who is involved? Is this like a, a like George Washington's axe type situation where the teams keep changing and only the idea of Jason remains the same? Are, is there anyone 100%. continuous? No. Never. <laughs> Never. The like the actually, hold on. It might just be like the same actor. I'm going to just double check. I mean, I hope that the creator is getting mad royalties. But apart from that, I'm just like, I'm so curious about how this happens. And sorry to the actor who played young Tommy, TM, uh, who expected to have a trilogy around him and then didn't. Rip, bro. Rip. Or older Tommy. Older Tommy is the one that was going to get the... Yeah, yeah. Adult Tommy. Really, it's it's been different people every movie, basically. More or less. It's like no no one has, like, been around for the entire almost 40 years of this franchise at this point so it's the opposite of like scooby-doo and daffy duck whose actors you know play them for decades at a time and it's the opposite of freddy krueger who is played by rob england except for like 
the remake that they made in the mid 2000s. Actually, it was made in 2010. But yeah, wow. it's like a bunch of different people have played Jason, but really only one person has played Freddy. What an interesting uh, uh, compliment. Yeah, absolutely. And do those franchises share like a setting at all or do they just end up crossing over and then it's like, surprise audiences, these are in the same universe? So, man, it's interesting because like in Freddy versus Jason, they Freddy is like harassing these children, right? These these young teens. And they decide to like summon Jason from hell in order to fight Freddy. So really Jason oh is kind of acting as an anti-hero in this. He does he does a bunch of murders, but I really don't think he like murders any teens until the very end of the movie but it's like pitting like <laughs> demons against each other so what were they expecting interesting so it is kind of like a like he sort of visits from another dimension yes yes he, he does he's like hey what's up though they do go to crystal lake like they drive from their like sleepy hometown where elm street is and they drive to crystal lake with like a sedated Jason. It's very weird because they sedate Jason so that he can fight Freddy in his dreams. It's fucking wild. It is a bizarre movie, but it's extremely good. <laughs> anyway, so going going away from Freddy versus Jason, which I could rant about yes, yes. all the time. So despite the totally off the rails stories towards the end, I think Jason's stalking of camp counselors in teens is so quintessential to how we see horror now. And Jason, in many ways, is the modern day boogeyman. He is the textbook slasher movie character. And while I described the first film as this morality tale uh, early on in this episode, the director, Sean S. Cunningham, instead described it in an interview as a fairy tale. He said, quote, As children, we get fairy tales, and the purpose of fairy tales is to take a child's fear and put them in the safety of a story. Which I would argue is also the purpose of an urban legend. It, it warns you how to act, and if you act outside of what is considered the safety or the norm, you face consequences. And that is what Jason and by extension, the rules of horror establish as well. They are morals very thinly veiled by story. Definitely. And it's easier to see those as like rote rules than it is to think of it as a moral imperative where it's like, well, just don't have sex in the hayloft and you'll be fine. And then you don't kind of interrogate it further um, unless the movie really invites you to to think about the fact that it's just kind of punishing like teenage licentiousness. Yeah. And it's really interesting, like, to the point where Wes Craven, who wrote a Nightmare on Elm Street, later made Scream, where he literally establishes through one of the characters, like, these are the rules of horror yeah. films. If you break these rules, you will die if you're in a horror film. Like, it, it's so obviously written out by, like, how heavy handed some of these films can be about like, oh, well, they had sex. So obviously they're going to die. You know, that's so funny. I feel like I saw Scream before I saw many of these horror movies. And so I was sort of attuned to it. Um, and our, our friend Caroline's podcast, She Done It, has been teaching me these rules about detective fiction, too, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, no, like if you meet somebody in the first 30 pages and they're like in line for an inheritance, like, oh, no, 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 you're about to be killed. No, no, no. You, you can't have money. Unacceptable. Yeah. And we kind of talked about this early on, but I, I think it's really interesting that such a simple act of like, you know, malpractice by camp counselors could create this whole urban legend. And then like, because of the actual actions of people within these films, create like a franchise in which <laughs> the character is supernaturally brought back to life and also like is brought to and from hell at certain points. It is, it's, it's such a like, 
weird giant spin from such a simple thing to what it is now. You know what I mean? And that is such a like perfect analogy for what urban legends can become. And horror movies, too, where it's like if the character has just shut the blinds or if they had just, you know, not picked up the phone call uh, or whatever else it might be. And like you were saying earlier, uh, and with a quote, it's much easier to think about individual action than it is to kind of confront the presence of evil in the world. And in this film, too, like who's to say that there was any truth to the story that Mrs. Voorhees was saying? Like it's possible that her child died and in grief and anger, you know, she decided to take revenge against some, you know, twisted or exaggerated version of the truth. And that is really all it takes um, at the end of the day for a legend to crop up. And once one does, it takes on a life of its own. And that's, you know, what we love so much about urban legends and about folklore is, you know, the story has meaning, but the the meta text around the story has the most meaning. Like, it's not just the events of history. It's the historiosity. It's like how we talk about the history and why. And I think this is a great example, too, because of this franchise. You have so many different writers taking the story of Jason and then putting their own spin on it and making it new and different. So like, yeah, first movie says Jason died. He drowned in the lake. Second movie says, no, no, he survived the drowning and he's been living in the woods this whole time. And then by the time you get to like... Freddy versus Jason is a good example. They they flash back to Jason drowning because that's his worst nightmare and Freddy is trying to, you know, use it against him. And it's like the other kids at the lake forced him to go swimming knowing he couldn't swim and that's the reason he drowned, you know? Right. It's so it like it's so fascinating to see what different writers can do with like the simple basic outline of the same story and just keep creating different versions of it. And I think that's what urban legends are. It is one person hears little facts of the same story and then blow it into something bigger and more interesting and something like more impactful. Like it's a little more addition for each person who tells it like a game of telephone. Yeah. And it's a way to, you know, again, kind of get at sideways the presence of tragedy, of evil, um, and to kind of brush up against it in a way that doesn't desensitize us, but makes it feel a little more controllable, where if you, you know, kind of ponder, uh, you know, a, a random death or a killing or some other kind of tragedy, it lets us kind of absorb the presence of that in the world without getting completely overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that we were able to talk about this. Like, this is genuinely such a cool conversation to have a about a movie that most people know or at least like know the basics of and to be able to like really dig into it and kind of show that you know everyone can tell their own version of the Friday the 13th story is like the best part about this totally and it just inspires me to pick up more comic books because you've taught me to love the fact about comics that as people you know take over runs and issues and um you know they square like a parallel dimension version with the previous dimension and just kind of all of the really inventive things that writers come up with to um square multiple people's versions of the same story in the same universe uh, i think is just absolutely wonderful and if you are taught to appreciate it instead of be confused by it it's just sort of like another facet of the story to really enjoy so you listeners you can retcon your own urban legends 100 percent. just saying could be fun yeah, do it responsibly and don't use them as a, a pretext for crimes. Yeah, or uh, or racism or any sort of xenophobia. Thank you. Yeah, we we're all cool. We we're all know. cool. We all we know, know that that we use stories as a way to empathize with and connect with the world and to you know make the most of our limited time. 
And that's really all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Oh, and just remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. DoorDash is a fast, convenient food delivery app. Get $5 off your first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter creepy at checkout. Calm is the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. Get 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com spirits. And Tula House is a Brooklyn-based indoor plant and design store founded to bring us closer to nature while exploring new ways to design and experience plant life. Get 15% off your entire order by using the discount code TULAHOUSE at tula.house. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.